0: This morning, we're going to finish our study of Acts chapter 7, 1 to chapter 8, verse 4, the martyrdom of Stephen. And I'm not going to take the time to review the history. Let me just briefly turn to Acts chapter 7 and show you the pattern of this. Acts chapter 7, Peter's, uh, Stephen's historical defense. First of all, he uh, he, he, he covers the age of the patriarchs. Stephen defends himself against the charges that the Jews have leveled against him by reviewing Old Testament history. In Acts chapter 7, there are three ages. There are three divisions. After all, Stephen, though he's a layman, is also a preacher. So he has three points. And the first one's the age of the patriarchs, the second one the age of Moses, and the third one the age of Solomon. Now, take your Bible and look with me at Acts chapter 7. Acts 7, verses 2 to 16. First, the age of the patriarchs. Acts chapter 7, verse 2, and he said, Men, brethren, fathers, hearken! The God of glory appeared unto our father, Abraham, when he was worshiping in the temple. Where did he appear? Right away he strikes the note. You object to me because Jesus, my Savior, indicated that God was going to perhaps make the temple pass saved. and That my Savior said to that woman beside the well that... Uh, The day is going to come when they will not worship God here at Samaria or down at Jerusalem, but anywhere, for men worship him in spirit and in truth. So God appeared to Abraham down in Ur of the Chaldees and said, get out of the country. He gave him no land. And Then down to verse uh, verse 8, he gave him the covenant of circumcision. So Abraham begat Isaac, circumcised him. Isaac begat Jacob. Jacob begat the 12 patriarchs patriarchs moved then we sold Joseph to Egypt, but God was with him. With him where? Down in Egypt, not in Palestine, not at the temple. God was with him down in Egypt, delivered him out of all his affliction. There came a dearth over the land, verse 11, 12. Jacob heard it, he sent his fathers down. And Joseph delivered our, our fathers, not in Palestine, but down in Egypt. The age of the patriarch. Secondly, beginning at verse 17, we come to the age of Moses, the age of the law, verse 17. Running on down to about verse 47, the age of the law. Long passage here. What are the points he's going to make? You know, I read this, I suppose, for 15 years. So I saw the movement that, that, uh, that Stephen follows here. Look with me at Acts chapter 7. But when the time, verse 17, the promise drew nigh, which God had sworn to Abraham, the people grew and multiplied in Egypt till another king arose. The same dealt subtly and so on down the line. Moses is born, verse 20. He was nourished by Pharaoh's daughter, verse 21. Verse 23, when he was fully 40 years old, he came to his heart to visit his brethren and children of Israel. Seeing one of them suffer wrong, he defended him. He supposed, verse 25, his brothers would understand, but they didn't. And, uh, and he did it the second day, verse 26. And verse 27, he... He, the Jew, the Israelite, that did his neighbor wrong, thrust, him, thrust Moses away, saying, Who made thee a ruler and a judge over us? Will you, Moses, kill me as thou didst the Egyptian yesterday? Then Moses fled. Moses was first rejected by his brother. He came unto his own, and his own did what? See them not. First rejected, Moses. He fled as a stranger to the land of Midian. Where he begat two sons. When 40 years expired, there appeared to Moses, where? In the wilderness, not at the temple, in the wilderness, an angel of the Lord in a flame of fire. Moses st- uh, saw it, he stopped. Verse 32 God said, I'm the God of thy fathers, the God of Abram, Isaac, Jacob. The greatest revelation of God in the Old Testament was given to Israel outside the land of Palestine and away from the temple. That's the point that Stephen is making. God appeared to Moses, but he appeared to him down in the wilderness, outside Palestine. Verse 33, put off thy shoes and thy feet, for the place where thou standest is holy ground. Where is that place? At the temple? No, down yonder in the wilderness. That's the point he's making. I've seen the affliction of my people, which is in Egypt. I've heard their groaning. Verse 35, look at it now. This Moses, whom they first refused, saying, who made thee a ruler and a judge, the same did God send to me a a ruler and deliverer by the hand of the angel which appeared unto them in the bush. He brought them out, showed them signs. Verse 37. This is that Moses which said unto the children of Israel, A prophet shall the Lord your God raise up unto you of your brethren. What are the next three words? Underline them. They're key words. Prophet, like, unto me like unto me him shall you hear this is he that was with the assembly in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him not at the temple but in Mount Sinai with our fathers verse 39 to whom our fathers would not obey but thrust him from them their hearts turned back again to Egypt that's the age of Moses you know the two points he makes here Would you, you don't mind looking up here what are those two points First of all, that God appeared to Moses outside the land of Palestine and away from the temple. The most sacred revelation of God in the Old Testament, if we could put degrees upon it, was given not at the temple, not in Palestine, but outside Palestine, down in the wilderness where God gave Moses the law and revealed himself unto Moses. Don't charge me with speaking against the temple. Don't say that God can only show himself at the temple. Why, said Moses. God appeared to Abraham. Why, said Stephen. God appeared to Abraham in Ur of the Chaldees. God appeared to Joseph in Egypt. God appeared to Moses in the wilderness and gave him the law. Secondly, second point that he makes. This Moses said, God's going to raise up a prophet, referring to Jesus. God's going to raise up a prophet, lie unto me. Like unto me. Well, how like unto Moses? Moses came first at the age of 40, offered himself to the people, offered himself to the men to deliver them from the bondage of the Egyptians. And what did they say to him? No, no, we don't want you. Are you going to kill us like you killed that Egyptian yesterday? And Moses knew then that it was out and he had to get out of the land of Egypt. And he fled way over yonder to the back side of the desert, was there for 40 years, and about the time he was ready to draw social security, 80 years of age, see. God called them back, spoke to them out of the burning bush, called them back, he offered himself to Israel, and they followed him when he came to them the second time. The first time, rejection. The second time, acceptance. Now is that point lost on you? It wasn't lost on his ears. They knew the Old Testament well, see. And they could see the two points that Moses is making. And those two points were unanswerable. They couldn't stop Moses, couldn't answer. One, God revealed himself outside the land of Palestine. And number two, God's deliverers have normally first been rejected, then been received. Those points are unanswerable. Then he comes third to the age of Solomon. begin at verse 47. Verse 47. Verse 47. He says, uh, verse 47, but Solomon built him a temple. The age of Solomon. First, the age of the patriarchs, 2 to 16. Second, the age of Moses, 17 to 46. Third, the age of Solomon. But Solomon built him a house. That's the temple. That's the thing. They, they, uh, regarding which they were criticizing Stephen For which they brought him to trial He spoke against the temple God can only speak in the temple And you're quoting your leader is Saying that God one day will do away with this temple Look at what Solomon said Solomon built him a temple However However, even as Solomon said The most high dwells not in temples made with hands As saith the prophet Heaven is my throne, earth is my footstool What house will you build me Saith the Lord, well, What is the place of my rest? Has not my hand made all these things? And the argument of Stephen was unanswerable. Now Stephen's going to do three things in his speech. I'm going to put them together. First of all, he does Stephen does three things? And, but it's not point one, point two, point three. He does three things, but these three things are in the is, in the in the movement of the speech that he makes in the movement of his defense. First. He's going to answer the charges. Second, he's going to draw an analogy. And third, he's going to make an indictment. First, he's going to answer the charges. What are the charges? Well, the charges are that uh, he speaks against the temple and against the law. Acts chapter 6. And speaking against the temple was blaspheming God. And speaking against the law was blaspheming Moses. First, he speaks against the temple, They, they say. And he speaks against the temple because uh, he, uh, he recounted in his preaching what his master said. His master said, destroy this temple and I'll raise it up the last day. Only they misread his words, And instead of saying, as you know, at the trial, he said, if you destroy this temple, I will raise it up. They warped those words and said, I will destroy this temple and I will raise it up. Now, Stephen doesn't bother answer that misinterpretation he takes it that point and then John chapter 4 24 God is a the spirit they that worship him must worship him in spirit and truth not necessarily in the temple then the second charge is the fact that he's going to change the laws now how does Stephen answer over here is the answer first of all he answers this charge about the temple and he answers it by two things number one by showing that God Spoke and revealed himself outside the land of Palestine. Where did God first speak to Abraham or the Chaldees. Where did God speak to Joseph and raise Joseph up, make him deliver to save all the people? Where did that take place? Down in Egypt. Where did God speak to Moses out of the burning bush? Down in the wilderness, Sinai. Where did God give to Moses the Mosaic law? Not at the temple, but where? wilderness. God revealed himself outside the Palestine. God's not limited to the temple. A Very powerful argument. Secondly, he pointed to is that when Solomon built the temple, and you're objecting to my speaking against the temple, which I haven't, but you're objecting to it. Why, said Stephen, when Solomon built the temple, Solomon prayed a prayer. And in that prayer, Solomon said that God can't be confined to the temple. That although you built the temple, God can't be confined to the temple. Even the man who built the temple acknowledged that. And that answered him. Then the second charge that they brought was that he's going to change the law. God gave the law, and and uh, you you say God's going to change the law. And probably what they were using against him was that statement of Jesus in Matthew chapter 17. Think not that I am come to destroy the law. I have come to fulfill the law. Now, by the way, A Shakespearean aside, how did Jesus fulfill the law? Not by placing it on us. Because Peter at the Jerusalem Council said, why put ye upon the Gentiles the yoke of the law which neither we nor our fathers were able to bear? How did Jesus, uh, what did Jesus mean when he said, I've come not to destroy it, but to fulfill it? Well, how do you fulfill the law? Well, here's the law in Memphis. Let's say here's the law about, about driving on Interstate 40. I've got to drive all the way up to the other side of Cookville this afternoon to speak tonight. And I'm going to observe the law 55. But let's say that uh, there's a law. You don't drive above 55 miles per hour. Now, you can fulfill the law one of two ways. The law can be fulfilled and honored one of two ways. It can be honored, first of all, by observing the law perfectly and not driving above 55 miles an hour. That's number one. You can observe the law by obeying it perfectly. Or secondly, the law is honored when, if it is violated, its penalty is assessed and suffered. If the law says for every mile above the speed limit, you'll pay $2 for every mile above, and I get 10 miles above the speed limit, (coughs) the law is honored when I'm fined $20 and I pay that $20. So I, the law is fulfilled in one of two ways. The law is fulfilled either by the law being kept perfectly or by its penalty being assessed. Now, my friend, how did Jesus fulfill the law? First of all, he fulfilled it by keeping it perfectly. He kept the law of God perfectly, and he fulfilled it by keeping it perfectly. Secondly, that law was violated, the law of God beyond even the law of Moses, the law of God written even the conscience of the pagans, that law was violated, and Jesus bore its penalty perfectly for you and me. So Jesus fulfilled the law first by keeping it perfectly himself and by paying its penalty in your behalf and in my behalf. Now, I wonder if anybody knows what the word is, which the Bible uses to describe the fact that Jesus bore the penalty of the law. Anybody tell me what that word is? Uh, well, that's what he, uh, that's what Jesus did when he did this, when he bore the law, the penalty of law. By bearing the penalty of law, he satisfied the justice of God. The death of Jesus is a penal, two, vicarious, three, satisfaction, propitiation. The death of Jesus is a penal death. He bore it as a penalty. But since he didn't deserve it, secondly, he bore it in place of somebody else. That's vicarious, bearing shaven, scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood, Or as Charles Wesley wrote, amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? Vicarious, substitution. Third, the effect of that death upon the justice of God and upon the wrath of God is that it quenched the wrath of God and satisfied the justice of God. And the word for that is propitiation. What is that first one? He bore the penalty. There's a word that the book of Galatians uses. Do you know what it is? Listen to my radio broadcast this Sunday. I'm going to spend the whole time this Sunday on what that New Testament word is, which Jesus bore in our behalf. And the law is honored and vindicated. Now, that's the charge they brought. You violated the law. You know what Stephen's answer is? Stephen's answer is this why, listen. The book the law was given. Your father's disobeyed them. When Moses was up there receiving the Ten Commandments, your fathers are down here below the mount, violating the Ten Commandments. They broke it on the very day that it was given. So don't charge me with breaking the law. That's, P- that's Stephen's answer to these charges that are brought against him. His answer. Now, secondly, there's an analogy, and I've already mentioned that. The analogy is this: uh, because Stephen knew that although these were the charges, that underneath these charges was a basic objection. Paul confronts in 1 Corinthians chapter one. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter one, we preach Christ crucified to the Greeks, foolishness; to the Jews, what was that? Stumbling block. Christ as crucified. The word Christ means Messiah. Messiah as crucified. To say to the Jew of that day, a crucified Messiah was like, saying a round square. They didn't go together. Matter of fact, when P- Jesus said in Matthew 16 to Peter, uh, I'm going to go up to Jerusalem and suffer many things, and be crucified and rise again the third day, you remember what Peter said? That's wonderful, Lord. That will fulfill Old Testament prophecy. Now, you know that's not what he said. What did he say? That thee, far from thee, Lord, never, you're the Messiah. See, Peter just finished saying, Matthew 16, Whom do men say that I am, thou art the Christ. The word Christ is Messiah. I guess you all know that the Hebrew word is Mashiach, Messiah. And when it's brought over the Septuagint, Mashiach was translated by Christos, Christ. So Christ and Messiah mean exactly the same thing. Come from the Hebrew verb Mashiach, uh, which means to anoint, to anoint. So Jesus is the Messiah, the anointed one of God. So when he asked Peter, whom do men say that I am? Whom do you say that I am? Peter said, thou art the Christ, the Messiah. Thou art the Messiah, the Son of God. Thou art the Messiah. Then Jesus said, I'm going to go to Jerusalem, suffer many things. Peter said, that's a round square. That's a round square. That doesn't fit together. If you're the Messiah, how can you suffer? Far be that from thee, Lord. You can't. That can't happen to you. That's a round square. Even the disciples didn't understand it. It was a stumbling block to them. They simply couldn't get it through their heads until the day of Pentecost. Couldn't understand it. Messiah should suffer. Now, wherever Paul preached, wherever the apostles, they met that objection. They met that objection. If Jesus is the Messiah, how could he suffer? Now, Stephen knew that. And he knew that underneath the objections that they're raising was this basic objection unstated. That is that we Christians claim that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Messianic prophets. prophecy. We claim that Jesus is the Messiah. If he is the Messiah, how can he suffer? You remember when Peter said that, that be far from thee. you can't suffer, you're the Messiah. That's a round square. You remember what Jesus said, get thee behind me? Yeah, the, the, the words, that is the voice, was Peter but the thought was the devil. That's a round square. You're the Messiah you can't suffer. Now Stephen faced the same thing. How did Peter answer how did Stephen answer that? Well I've already indicated. Stephen answered it in the flow of Old Testament history by showing that God's great deliverers were first rejected and then received. Why do you think they were first rejected and then received? For this very purpose that they would be good types of the Lord Jesus. So when Moses came at the age of 40 and offered himself to Israel, they rejected him, and he fled away 40 years in the wilderness. That's where Jesus is today, as far as the nation of Israel is concerned. He's in the wilderness. He's in heaven, absent from his brethren. Forty years later, Moses came back and offered himself as God's deliverer, and they accepted him, and he led them out of Egypt into the promised land which Jesus is going to do someday when he comes the second time. And then he quotes another man. He quotes uh, not only Joseph, he also quotes, uh, not only Moses, he also quotes before that Joseph. Joseph was first rejected by his brothers and sold into slavery. They wanted to kill him and lost to their minds. And he went down to Egypt and spent 13 years in the prison down there. Absent from. That's where Jesus is today, absent from his brethren, his kinsmen according to the flesh. And then he was elevated to the prime ministry, right next to the Pharaoh. And when that happened, his brethren came down and he delivered them and brought them into a land of plenty, the land of Goshen. So Jesus, first of all rejected, and then absent, and then received and embraced by his brethren. And that analogy, which may be lost on us as Gentiles, was not lost on Stephen's audience. They understood it. It was unanswerable. What's the key to it? A prophet, what are those words? Like unto? A prophet, like unto me. How like unto me? First rejected, absent, and then received. So, without even saying it, they saw the point to which he was driving, Jesus, the Messiah, first rejected. He's gone to heaven. Someday he's going to come again be received. Then he gives the indictment, chapter 7, verses 51 to 53. And it's a powerful indictment. I declare if a man got up and preached like this today, they'd do what they did with Stephen. They'd toss him out, see. (laughs) It's a powerful indictment. He doesn't spare anything. See, his argument so far has been unanswerable. He's built a solid base on which to... uh, to issue this indictment, and uh, he sees that they're not going to respond. He sees that hearts are heart to heart, so he closes by making this indictment. It kind of shocks them. I remember reading the story that Barnhouse told uh, one time, one of his books. He said that uh, when he was in Philadelphia, where he was for about 30 years, there was an atheist in Philadelphia that used to ridicule Barnhouse all the time. Now, I've got to put a footnote to this. I've read a lot of stories by Barnhouse. I've yet to read a story where Barnhouse came out second best. <laughs> they're all the kind of stories that he lived happily ever after, but uh, they're tremendous. I tell our students that if you get the first three volumes of Barnhouse's uh, books on the book of Romans, Romans one, two, and three. Read those first three volumes, you'll get a course in systematic theology. I recall when I was, when Paige Cothran came to us first from down in Mississippi, began studying here, I suggested that he get those first three volumes, and he got them right away. And he came a few days later to me and he said, man, this is tremendous. Like theology is exactly what it is. Tremendous, first three volumes. But somewhere in one of those volumes, Barnhouse used this illustration. He was a master at illustration. And he used this illustration. He said he, uh, this atheist in Philadelphia who wrote him for about 15 or 20 years, one day was in a hospital in Philadelphia dying. The man had incurable cancer, Death was imminent. He was certain he was going to die. So Barnhouse went to the hospital, went to the man's room, got a chair and sat down in the chair and looked at the dying man. Sat there for about four or five minutes. And finally the man, the atheist, looked at Barnhouse and broke the silence after four or five minutes. And he said, Barnhouse, what are you here for? You know where I stand? I know where you stand. What are you here for? Barnhouse said, I'm watching an atheist die. <laughs> see, now that's a hard one, isn't it? That's the shock treatment, see? <laughs> now, don't try that yourself, you see? <laughs> I'm looking at two doctors. Don't try that, please. And I'm not going to try it either. But that's what Barnhouse, he was using the shock treatment. And, and the atheist wilted, wilted right away. And he said, you wouldn't, Dr. Barnhouse, he said, you, you wouldn't lock a dying man, would you? Barnhouse said, no, I don't plan to mock you. I'm not mocking you. He said, I sat at the bedside of dozens of Christians who were dying. They had peace and assurance and tranquility and confidence in God. They were unafraid. I want to see if an atheist dies with that kind of peace and confidence and tranquility. The shock treatment. Well, that's what Stephen used here. And he closed it with it. Now, don't come with me. Don't leave your mind on that illustration. See? Stay with me. Look at this indictment, verses 51 to 53. You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears. Now, suppose you got up and told an audience that. (laughs) (laughs) Now, I'll have to be, I've I've thought about saying that to you men many (laughs) times. You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, you do always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do ye. Which of the prophets have not your fathers persecuted? They have slain them which showed before of the coming of the just one. Of whom you have now been the betrayers and murderers, who received the law by your, your fathers, received the law by the disposition of angels at Mount Sinai. And yet they did not what? You charge me of disobedience. Listen, your fathers got the law, and the day they got the law, they disobeyed. He disobeyed. He charges them three things, threefold indictment. First of all, their attitude, rebellion. Verse 51, you resisted God just as your fathers resisted God and were stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart, so you're just like your fathers. Matter of fact, my friend, that last statement of verse 51 is somewhat the key to this speech. You see that last statement? You might underline it. As your fathers did, so do you. Like father, like son. Your fathers were stiff-necked and disobedient, you're just like them. That's the first statement. First indictment. Your attitude, rebellion. The second the second indictment is this: you killed the just one. Verse 52. What should the prophets have your fathers not persecuted? And you slew the just one of whom you now have been the betrayers and murderers. Your fathers persecuted and killed the prophets, and you killed the just one who didn't deserve it. And then the last indictment, the first one, rebellion. The second one, murder. The third one, the one that Jesus denounced more than any other sin, hypocrisy. Verse 53, you received the laws of privilege. You boast in the law. And yet you don't keep the law. Verse 53, you who have received the law by the disposition of angels and have not obeyed it. You became lawbreakers and murdered the one who gave the law. That's interesting, isn't it? They murdered the one who gave them the law. Who gave them the law? The triune God. Whom did they murder? The second person of the Trinity. Now, that's a powerful argument. Stephen has made a powerful speech, and the power of the speech and the earnestness that came across was simply unanswerable. He charges them with murder. Matter of fact, you know what Stephen has done? He's turned the table. They were the accusers at the beginning. He was the man on trial. When it's all over, they're the ones who are on trial, and he's the accuser. And he accuses of rebellion and murder and hypocrisy. Now, they can do one of two things. He did the same thing. Peter did the same thing in Acts chapter 2. What did the men say in Acts chapter 2? They, they did the first thing. What must we do? Yes, we're guilty of what you said, Peter. Now, what, what shall we do? They repented and trusted Christ the Savior. But these men didn't. The only outlet, the only alternative was to stone Stephen, to put him to death. And that's what they did. We, verse 4, we got two things here. This is the stoning point three on your outline, the stoning of Stephen and the consequence of his death. First, the stoning of Stephen, chapter 7, 54 to 60. Second, the consequence of his death. All right, let's read these verses, look at them, and then draw the conclusions. Verses 54 to 60, the stoning of Stephen. When they heard these things, that is these, um, his auditors, the Sanhedrin and the mob. When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart. And they gnashed on him with their teeth. When I used to read those passages in the Gospels, in the book of Revelation, that says that uh, men that hate God are going to gnash their teeth. In the tribulation, when men are suffering and hate God, they gnash their teeth. I always thought that meant gnash their teeth and suffering. Well, they were suffering so much, they gnashed their teeth. One day I discovered that that's not what they meant. That these men who are unrepentant in the book of Revelation, who are suffering the terrible judgment of God, remain impenitent and they still hate God and they gnash their teeth in hatred against God. By the way, will there be growth in holiness in heaven? Yes. Will there be growth in evil and sin in hell? Yes. Will men get worse in hell? Yes. What if a man... Why does God punish men eternally in hell? If a man sins against God and lives 80 years, why doesn't God just punish him for 80 years? Why does God punish men eternally? Now, that's a very difficult problem. I believe in eternal judgment, and there are several answers to that. But one of them is this, that men don't repent in hell. And the reason that God punishes men in hell eternally is that men eternally and increasingly hate God. And 100,000 years from now in hell, men will be gnashing their teeth against God. We say they have bodies? Yes, they'll have bodies. Gnashing their teeth. Will they have any dentists down there? (laughs) No, no dentists. But they'll gnash their teeth eternally because they eternally hate God. And that's why punishment in hell is eternally. And these men gnash their teeth against Stephen in bitterness and hatred. Verse 55, but he being full of the Holy Spirit, looked up steadfastly in heaven, saw the glory of God, and Jesus standing on the right hand of God. Is Jesus standing, or is he seated? Both. Both, see. This is like, this is one where you can win both ways. Have you quit beating your wife? You lose both ways there, see. (laughs) This is one where you win both ways. Is Jesus seated, or is he standing? Now, will you look here? (laughs) Is Jesus seated or is he standing? Well, Jesus had both a finished work and an unfinished work. His finished work is his death upon the cross. He died for sinners. He paid the atoning price for our sin. When that was over on the cross, Jesus said, it is finished. So he went to heaven and sat down to indicate that his work is finished. But he began a new work. And that work is to intercede and advocate for believers. And that capacity is standing. So Jesus is both seated and standing. Related to his work in behalf of sinners, he's seated. That's over. That's finished. Related to the work uh, to us believers, his work goes on. He started new work. That's the unfinished work of Christ. And related to that, he's standing. And one of them is to protect his saints. And so when Stephen looked up into heaven and saw Jesus, he saw him standing. You think this was a real visible thing? I think so. Do You think he saw Jesus bodily? I don't have any problem with that at all. I wrote my doctoral dissertation on the conversion of Paul. And the same psychological arguments that are used to get around the visible bodily resurrection of Jesus are used the same ones to get around the visible bodily appearance of Paul of Jesus to Paul. And I they they have, you know, I settled this long ago. When I settle my conception of God, I believe that God is infinitely powerful and great. I don't think there's any problem. If God created this universe out of nothing, there ought not to be any problem of God appearing visibly and bodily to Paul and Stephen. And I think that God, that Jesus appeared visibly, bodily, to Paul on the road to Damascus, and I wrote my dissertation on that. And I think that Paul that Jesus appeared bodily to Stephen. That Stephen saw Jesus visibly. Now you say. How did Stephen see over several hundred thousand miles? Well, our telescope can't get to the end of the universe. And if Jesus is in the third heaven, how do you see that? I don't know. That doesn't trouble me. Probably wouldn't have troubled you if I hadn't raised it. See? <laughs> but, you know, down the line, some kid's going to think about that, see? And uh, uh, that's no problem to me. I say, how long? Uh, you know, how? I ask them, how long does it take you to think to heaven and back? You can think to heaven and back, yeah. Well, if you think to heaven and back, then the new body's going to be able to get to heaven and back just the same speed, see? And I don't know how. But I think that Stephen saw Jesus bodily and visibly. I don't think it was simply a vision. I don't think he was hallucinating. I don't think he was taking some form of LSD, see? I think he saw him bodily and visibly standing in heaven to encourage his child as he was dying. Verse uh, 57. Then they cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears, stopped their ears. They couldn't take what Stephen was preaching. Today they go to sleep. See, he stopped their ears and ran upon him with one accord. They cast him out of the city and stoned him, which was a Jewish mode of death. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at the young man's feet, whose name was Saul. Now you know that in according to Old Testament law, the men who witnessed against the man had to cast the first stone. Remember what Jesus said? John 8 woman taking adultery. So here were the witnesses that brought false witness against Jesus. And they had to cast the first stone. Now, the reason for that law was that it, it that obviously was to slow a man up from bearing false witness. If a man had to cast the first stone and, and stone a man to death, he would think the second and third and fourth time before lying, bringing the false testimony. But the consciences of these men were sinners. They didn't have any problems there. So not only did they bear false witness against Stephen, they picked up the stone. They probably threw him over the edge of the cliff. While he was lying down there over the edge of a small cliff, they took these stones and threw them down and stoned him to death. They stoned him to death. Now, how did they get away with it? When Jesus was crucified, the Sanhedrin had to take Jesus to Pilate and Herod. How did they get away with it here? Well, the reason they got away with it, two things. Number one, this is mob action. But the second reason is that Pilate was near the end of his rule. Pilate ruled in Palestine as the governor or procurator from about 26 uh, AD to about 35 or 36 AD. This is near the end. And near the end of Pilate's rule, Pilate simply did not have control of the government as he did when they put Jesus to death. It had slipped away from him. And so consequently, the Sanhedrin had a lot more power. And they stoned Stephen and put him to death. Verse 59, they stoned Stephen. Stephen called upon God, saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. That's beautiful, isn't it? I read and studied this last night, and I confess to you, I hope you don't mind me saying this, that I almost uh, cried when I read this story once again. There was Stephen dying. You know, the average man would be cursing these guys like everything. Here's Stephen calling upon Jesus. Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. One of the men who made a profound influence upon my life was Brother Sam Reed, our bookstore manager, years ago. My fourth boy is named after him. I had two people that made a tremendously profound influence on my life. One was a returned Methodist missionary, and the other was Sam Reed. And as his wife, who's still living, lives here at Memphis, said, you know, one day after the day, the day I went to the hospital, and he was already dead when he arrived, she said, Jim, you know that Sam loved you better than... He did his own brothers, and I said, I know that. She said, I said, how was it? Well, she said, when we called the ambulance, and he was dying, he was kneeling in his bed, and he was, he said, uh, he was just saying, and this is so, if I said it, it would be, I'm not built quite like this, but Sam Reed was. And he said, uh, she told me, she said, he's dying? He was crying out in prayer. He said, oh, Jesus, I love you. I love you. I'm coming. See, and he died beside his bed. And I held the funeral along with George Hurd. And here's Stephen. Lord Jesus, receive my spirit, ready to come. Gentlemen, I wonder if you and I can say that. See, I wonder if I'm ready to die because the man that's ready to die is the man that's ready to live. And if I were dying, could I say, Oh, Jesus Christ, receive my spirit. I'm ready to come. I'm looking forward to coming. And then he thinks about these men that killed him. Look in verse 460, And he kneeled down. And cried with a loud voice, Lord, strike these rascals dead. (laughs) Is that what he said? I don't want to be facetious. What did he say? Lord, lay not this into their charge. He he had walked with Jesus Christ so much, so intimately, that he captured his spirit. When he had said this, he fell asleep. That is, his body fell asleep. His soul did. All of Seventh-day Adventists. His body fell asleep, not his soul. Now the consequences, we'll touch on this next week. Look at verses, chapter 8, verses 1 to 4. That goes, 8, 1 to 4 is the bridge between the first section and the second. Saul was consenting to his death. First of all, verse 57, they laid the clothes at Saul's feet. Then he makes an advance, he was consenting to the death. And then in verse 3, Saul assumes leadership in the persecution of Christians. So Saul was consenting to his death. That time was a great persecution against the church, which is at Jerusalem. They were all scattered abroad throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the preacher. The laymen were scattered, and the preacher stayed in Jerusalem. But the laymen got out, got involved in doing what Jesus commanded them to do, get out of Judea and Samaria. Devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering into every house, and hailing men and women, committed them to prison. Therefore, they that were scattered abroad, went everywhere preaching the word. Now I want to close by saying two things. Next week I'm going to point out, underscore the consequences of this first martyr. You remember what Joseph said when his brothers came to him and especially after Jacob died and his brothers thought, well now, now that our daddy Jacob is dead, Joseph is going to do what he's wanted to do all along. He's going to take it out on us and beat us up. And when they said that reveal what was on their heart to Joseph, you remember what Joseph said. You meant it for evil, but, yeah, that's, therefore, I'm not going to take any vengeance. Now, here's the same thing. Here's a great act of providence, and I want you to listen carefully. And want to say two things, you'll be through. And I'm going to expand on this a little more. Here's a great act of providence. And that act of providence indicates that God uses a, a, an apparently evil thing to accomplish his purpose. God used that apparently evil thing, 13 years in prison, sold into slavery, down yonder in prison uh, in, for 13 years, evil, evil, sinful on the part of his brothers, but God used that evil thing ultimately after 13 years to elevate Joseph and to deliver Israel. There's Moses, 40 years in the desert. You and I would have worn, our patients have been worn thin in about two months. There's Moses, 40 years in the desert. Is that good or evil? Evil, evil outwardly. Yet God used that evil thing way over yonder and backside the desert to develop Moses, to help him to learn the Sinai Peninsula, so that 40 years later God used him to lead the people through the Sinai Peninsula. And there's Jesus on the cross. Is that a good thing or an evil thing? Both. It's evil, it's a crime, the most despicable crime in human history. But God took that crime and turned it around and wrought out our eternal redemption. God said to his church, get out of Jerusalem. Get out of Jerusalem. Get out of Jerusalem. They didn't do it. You think God is going to be frustrated? No. So God used a martyrdom. A martyrdom. A martyrdom. An evil thing. God used a martyrdom to scatter his children outside of Jerusalem and to accomplish what God intended to be accomplished. At the very beginning, Acts chapter 1, verse 8. You meant it for evil, God meant it for good. You see, there going to be a lot of things in our lives that look evil. I had got the news yesterday, Jim came up and reminded me of it once again. A man that I've known for 20 years. In fact, he came to me, taught in the faculty of the University of Tennessee at Martin, and uh, he died the day before yesterday while he was out jogging. And uh, I've known him for years and years. Uh, he loved the Lord. He came to me about 12 years ago, and he said to me, you know, I'm teaching. He had his Ph.D., I'm teaching. But he said, I'm not really involved in the work of the Lord. I'd like to do more. He said, I got my whole summer. I want to use it. What can I do? He came down, spoke to me out there in the hall. And I talked with Walter. I said, Walter, why don't you start an intervarsity up on the campus, which he did, which he did. It was a great blessing. A number of the young people that go from here up there were helped by that intervarsity. Then he got involved in prison ministry up there. Then he got involved in the Gideon's, and he was involved in his local church, and he died Tuesday, dropped dead. I called his wife, couldn't get her, so I sat down yesterday and wrote a long letter to her. I said, "I, the words are cheap, words are cheap. They're easy to say, but I said, I want you to remind, help if I can, to remind you, to remind myself, that uh, these are things that are inexplicable, which we will not understand this side of heaven. And I wrote a doctor in Los Angeles. Angeles, the same thing yesterday. Also, he lost his little boy at the age of five about twenty years ago. Last, a few months ago, his other son, the only two sons, was killed in an accident. Also, and somebody, a great noted singer from Memphis, Christian, young lady, if I mention name, you'd all know her, was out there singing opera. And somehow the family heard it, asked, wondered if she couldn't sing at the funeral. In a busy schedule, she sang at the funeral. And he wrote me and said it was tremendous. meant something to my wife and myself. I said, what can we do? How can we remunerate you? And she said, I, I wouldn't take anything. And he said, well, now I want you to listen to this one here. She said, <laughs> uh, can what is your favorite charity? She said, Mid-South Bible College. <laughs> See? So he sent a substantial check, and I sat down and wrote a long letter to him. Lost two boys. Said we can't, we don't know about the providential ways of God. They're very mysterious. But what we do know is that God makes no mistakes. See, I lost my mother and dad when I was a boy. God makes no mistakes. God is infinitely wise and just and loving. What He does is infinitely wise and just and loving. Makes no mistakes. Now I may not understand why till I get to the other side. I probably won't. That's why we need faith. And God gives us faith to believe this. And God used in his providence this great thing. Now, give me 60 seconds. Don't pop the machine. Don't close the pages. Listen real carefully. Here's Stephen. Here's a layman. You're going out to work today. Most of you are layman here. Here's a layman. God used Stephen greatly. In a certain sense, had it not been for Stephen, there wouldn't have been a Paul. Stephen's influence was tremendous. Why did God use Stephen? Why will God use me at my work? Firestone, International Harvester, wherever it may be, why will God use me at my work? Why did God use Stephen? Four things. First, Stephen knew his Bible. And if you want God to use you, then you're going to have to study and know your Bible and read it daily and pray it in daily and translate it into life. Stephen knew his Bible. That sermon indicates that. Number two, Stephen had daily fellowship with Christ. That's given to us in Acts chapter 6. He walked with the Lord. Number three, Stephen was filled with the Spirit. His life was a Spirit-controlled life. And number four, Stephen's life was marked by integrity and honesty and faithfulness before men. Before men, Stephen's life was without And God used him. Why? He knew his Bible. He walked daily with Christ. He was filled with the Spirit. And he lived a life above reproach, a man of integrity. Now, you a layman. You say, well, I'm not a preacher. Well, that's just exactly why God wants to use you, because you're a layman. It was a layman that God used. The first and greatest missionary church in the Bible is the church at Antioch. Gentlemen, do you know by whom the Church of Antioch was founded? By Laban. The people that were scattered here went went up to Antioch and founded the Church of Antioch, the great missionary church. Founded by Laban. God wants to use you. And He wants you to use you today. But if God's going to use you, you're going to have to pay a price. You have to pay a price. You've got to know your Bible, walk with the Lord, fellowship with Christ. Of a life that's controlled by the spirit and a life of integrity before men when i meet those things and god is going to use me let's pray father we thank you for the life of this man stephen what a blessing it is his name is stephen the crown and here's the man that won the martyr's crown here was the man that laid down his life for jesus christ and all centuries have followed, have been blessed by the example and life of Stephen. Oh, God, we pray that we'll be like Stephen. We pray that we'll be less and less concerned about status in the community and status before people and two or three cars in the garages and our income and so on down the line, although these are all important. But, oh, God, give us help us to get our priorities straight. Help us to realize that we're not going to take over to heaven any more homes or stocks or bonds or cars. The only thing we're going to take over to heaven are the souls that we've introduced to Christ and the character that we've developed here. And, oh God, we pray that today thou move upon every heart here and impress upon each one of us that at the solemnity of the time. That our life is not long. It's like a paper that comes up and passes away. And that what we must do, we must do now today. And we pray, oh God, that today we'll be available to the Holy Spirit to use us, to witness to Christ and give us the joy. Give some of these men the joy, never had it, for sharing their faith and leading somebody to saving faith in the Lord Jesus. Give us all a good day today, we pray in Jesus' name.